This event with Yenga and Lucy Sweeney-Byrne and myself was meant to take place last May in the Crescent Arts Centre in Belfast. Obviously that didn't happen um, and so we're very grateful to the Dublin Book Festival for giving us a chance today to do an online version of the event. Um, maybe this will reach a lot of people who weren't able to be in Belfast which is such a good thing but I think at this point we're all missing being in person and doing events together so much that I really hope this inspires some of you to come to the Belfast Book Festival when it takes place again, hopefully next year, fingers crossed next year. So it's such a delight today to have um, two brilliant contemporary writers with me to discuss their work. Yenge was born in a small town just outside of Chengdu in southwest China and she is something of a literary prodigy. She won first prize in a national writing competition when she was just 18 and began publishing while still a teenager. People's Literature magazine chose her as one of China's 20 future literary masters, which is a huge honor. It's comparable to being, say, one of the New Yorkers, 20 under 40. Um, she's published several novels in China, which in recent years are being translated into English. There's The Chili Bean Paste Clan by Balestrier, which won the English Pen Award. Um, White Horse by Hope Road, currently on the shortlist for the Warwick Prize for Women in Translation, both translated by Nikki Harmon. And Strange Beasts of China is out in a week's time, Yen. So I arrived with Tilted Axis Press, translated by Jeremy Tiang. Yen met and fell in love with her Irish husband, who's also a writer, while he was working in Chengdu. And they moved to Dublin, where they had their son. And Yen started writing in English. I first discovered Yen's work when I was editing um, Being Various, the latest in the series of the Faber Anthology of Contemporary Irish Writing. I'd come across a story that Yen published on the Irish Times website. Um, perhaps I think, Yen, it might even have been one of the first stories you'd ever written in English. And I loved it. It had such a spark to it. I took a chance on Yen, who I didn't know at all, and commissioned her to write a story for the anthology. Um, she delivered such a blazingly, scorchingly brilliant story. I opened the anthology with it and we're going to talk about that in, in a minute. The second writer we have with us is Lucy Sweeney-Byrne, who was born in Wicklow, lived for some years, I think just down the road from me, Lucy, in East London. Um, I'm oh, in Whitechapel yeah. today, but you're now in Northumberland with your husband and your puppy, Ronnie Barker. Um, <laughs> Lucy has published fiction, essays and poems with a number of really prestigious Irish journals, including Banshee, The Stinging Fly, and The Dublin Review, among others. Her debut collection, Paris Syndrome, was Banshee's first foray into publishing. Um, Paris Syndrome takes its title from a real psychological syndrome for when the city of lights doesn't live up to expectations. It contains 11 stories, each narrated by or from the perspective of a young woman named Lucy. Her work has earned comparisons to Nicole Flattery and to cat person author Kristen Rapinian for its wry, unflinching self-awareness. And it's currently shortlisted for the Edge Hill Prize. So fingers crossed for both of you for those prizes coming up. Um, 
one of the first the first question I'd like to ask you both is about loneliness because I think one of the first one of the things Paris syndrome is best on is loneliness um Lucy you write about it in such a witty and self-deprecating way in the title story the narrator says what I was experiencing the scooped out hollowness the dull the dull ache the longing for warm touch these could have been caused by a number of things I reasoned vitamin deficiencies or the weather and many of your stories describe this paralyzing sense of loneliness um, on the bus to Chernobyl the narrator doesn't want to sit anyone to sit beside her but at the same time doesn't want to be the person beside who no one sits um, your characters always seeking never finding they're often even lonelier with others than they are alone and Yen your work in English um, both Alexander Whelan, the story in Being Various, um, and the as yet unpublished work I've been lucky enough to read of yours. They both go to extremely dark and lonely places, uh, though similarly with a real biting dark humour. So I wanted to ask both of you, loneliness, it's perhaps the essential modern condition, these atomized lives we live, especially in these pandemic times when we have, you know, it's that Versus Sartre's version of hell, you know, hell is other people or proximity without intimacy. And I guess that's what we're lucky to be together on Zoom. We couldn't otherwise. And yet it's not real closeness. It's a sort of full sense of it. So that's something you both explore in your work. Lucy, maybe you, first of all, um, if fiction is an essential way of connecting, a way of transmuting some of that darkness, is that how you approach writing about loneliness? Well, I think it's um, one of those chicken egg situations because I think the people drawn to writing are probably trying to find a way to um, quell their feelings of loneliness in the first place. Um, uh, the page is the companion that will always listen to you and never disagree. <laughs> you know, it's a great way to um, feel on alone in highly isolated situations. I think that's why we see such a plethora of blogs and um, you know everybody is writing these days or making some form of art as a way of communicating without requiring an immediate interlocutor. Um, I think our technology as you're saying the fact that we're on Zoom and that we haven't meshed up the very fact that we have these alternatives to meeting up makes the very possibility of not meeting with other people and of finding other ways to live that are inherently lonely possible. Uh, there's something very sad about the fact that we can go on Zoom instead of having to meet. So people use these alternatives instead of actually, um, you know, getting into a car and going <laughs> five hours to see somebody. Um, I know I've been reading recently books from the middle, the sort of middle of the century, like Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle. And he talks even then about how our technologies are facilitating what he calls lonely crowds. I think literature is a great way both to get rid of that feeling, but it also in a way facilitates it. Mm -hmm. And Yen? Well, I think that, first of all, I have to, I need to say, I'm very happy to be here to see <laughs> the two of you. And you're pretty much about the only two humans who are not my husband and my son I've seen in a long time. And and also Zoom, yeah, it's very strange. I. I've been listening to various podcasts and uh, I think that, like the idea of writing a, a short story on Zoom, like the very sensation of having Zoom meetings um, were mentioned multiple times in different podcasts. I think that story 
it's pretty much going to be written very soon by somebody. Yeah. And I, I, I did a few Zoom meetings, like this sort of events um, last last week or maybe three weeks. I just lost track of time. But I noticed the sensation of loneliness. It's really when you just log out, you know, because you, you were engaged and with a group of people. And then that's that's great welcoming sense of like I'm in conversation with someone else again and and then certainly when it everything finishes you just close the, the window and then everything is just gone and that drastic contrast really struck me and 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 then I think I'll quite often be very unsettled rather than just to be you know simmered in my perpetual loneliness of the lockdown like it seems to be more comfortable than to having this contrast but then I think that's where my writing comes in, is to create, you know, it's, you kind of wanted to hold on to that sense of being in somewhere with somebody, like virtually, spiritually, or act, or physically, which uh, becomes impossible recently. Um, but I think that's when I write, because it's trying to prolong that sensation. It's kind of like a delusion where you are somehow connected with other people, because I think well, this is mentioned a lot, like probably in writing classes, people say, you know, you have to have an, an imaginary reader. You're writing towards somebody. The very process of you stopping writing towards yourself, as in you're keeping a diary, and then when that identity of someone you're writing to being split into a different person, although it's like an imaginary person, but then there is this, the other person, which is this person in your imagination you were talking to. And I think, and then it becomes a conversation you're writing. I think that's when a person stops from being like just a person who writes and begins to be a writer. It's that split of identity that you have that the other person. And that is, you know, in a way you're really creating another identity out of yourself. And it's kind of also a bit sad. But that's how writing started, and at least for me, that's how writing started to sort of um, rectify this sense of loneliness. Yeah, there's something, Lucy, in your, your book of short stories, again and again, your characters travel. Your, in one story, your narrator travels to Chernobyl, and she says she's going for the idea of going. She isn't going to be a, a tourist looking at the horrors. She's going because she might write something about it. Um, Again, when she goes to, uh, in All My Exes Live in Texas, <laughs> title I love, <laughs> she invents a reason to travel there. She gives herself permission because she says she's going to go for research. She's going to go for writing. Mm. Um, and I wonder, it's funny, one of the things I most love about writing is it gives me permission to get obsessively interested in something. Mm. Um, you know, I've been obsessively interested in nuns or I've been obsessively interested in the London Blitz or recently obsessively interested in the Belfast Blitz or in when I was writing a story about glazed brick it, there was one mention about glazed brick facades on buildings and so I walked around London obsessively photographing all these chipped glazed brick facades and it felt like the excuse of writing gave me a way to be more present in the world and to notice things that I otherwise wouldn't have I sort of wouldn't have reason to notice I wouldn't have license to notice and similarly conversations I find that people tell you their stories and so you get a sort of shortcut to an intimacy with people that you wouldn't otherwise have if you didn't have this this 
vague or hypothetical function as a writer I find that's one of the one of the exciting things one of the least lonely things in fact um is that what writing is for you as well or is it a way of not having to be present in the world do you see what I mean yeah I do it's funny I think I completely agree with what you're saying and I absolutely go down dark holes of thought as well you know dark holes of particular interest in a particular subject that in the end may or may not feed into the writing but it's a great excuse to be like okay I'm gonna buy thousands of books and like right now um for what I'm working on I'm constantly photographing graffiti and noticing all the graffiti that's around and there is that absolute sort of um, high level engagement with the world and a great excuse to maybe think more deeply about um, things that you wouldn't have noticed otherwise. At the same time, when it comes to human interaction um, and maybe even interaction with the world, I think it's a funny thing because it's it's um, there's two layers to it where you're also participating in a slightly false and maybe slightly performative um, way with the world because you are listening to people's stories or talking to people and the very fact that you might then use that in some way towards a fiction or towards writing um it's almost like you are um, living a double life like you're an interviewee or you're not quite fully there and it also for me um especially in writing Paris syndrome in my sort of uh slightly deranged 20s um it was very much a way to allow myself into strange or um, humiliating or even potentially sometimes dangerous situations and to feel no fear because no matter what happened to me like if I went to Texas or Mexico or anything I could fictionalize it in writing and thus sort of um, retroactively control mm -hmm. every person I'd met and every action so it meant that I was there but also using all of those people all the time. Mm -hmm. There's something slightly false about it all too, you know? Yes. Yeah, then, I, I, I just, I really wanted to echo that when um, Lucy Sweeney, when she was talking about, I think this is such a sensation is that it's like, really it's in my head that everything makes sense. You know, the great idleness, when, even when you're just sitting around doing nothing for like a year, you're like, oh, this is me experiencing my life. And I think especially, um, yeah, similarly in my 20s, in my early 20s, I think as a young woman, like when I sort of, you know, when you encounter with this world in the most violent way, and, and there's so much frustration, confusion, and so much anger. I think so many of those things that happened, especially in my 20s, I cannot process it had I not considered myself a writer, an observer. And, and I think that seems to, to me, like now looking back, it was the only way that I could distance myself from the reality that I was hopelessly going through and, and then to, you know, to not go crazy. I think that seems to me, it's kind of almost like a therapeutic method that I just have to hold on to it. And I kept telling myself that I was a writer. And very funnily, I think that the the, the thing, again, uh, Lucy Swinney, you mentioned that because um, you start observing other people inevitably, all the other people in your life, no matter how intimate you are with them, becomes your materials. Mm -hmm. And and some, and the funny thing is, um, after your identity as a writer being acknowledged by other people around you, 
and they start performing back to you. I don't know if that happened to you, because for instance, I was just thinking my mother-in-law, and she's very proud of me, like writing English and sort of like writing about Irish like people's life. Like sometimes I wrote a story. She said, "Oh, that's that person that time we saw," and she was very proud of it. So then she made me a promise. Every time she texts me, she would use some very, I don't know if maybe it's like really colorful Irish slang or like colloquial <laughs> words. So I could collect. And she said, you know, I made a special effort <laughs> when I text you. I try to be very Irish. And that just occurred to me, like she explicitly, you know, she talked about it. But I'm sure this happens with all the other people. And like when they were around me, because I've always been a writer. So they were like, oh, we need to pay attention to that there's a writer. So it's almost like, you know, it's like a double effect. You are observing them and they know they're being observed by you. And this is so it's like a very interesting dynamic. But also sometimes I ask myself is that in, in this sense, you know, having carried on a life like this for so long. And this is what I do. Like writing is what I do. My life as a writer is what I live. Is there a sense of falsity in it? Because mm. it's like everybody is performing towards you because they know you're going to take them as your materials. And yeah, and and so, well, this is an, oh, this, I don't have any conclusion. It just occurred to me that sense of um, double performance. Yeah. Yeah, and we've, um, we've talked about this late at night over a glass of whiskey and we've talked about our 20s um, and encounters in the literary world. And you said something very interesting about that split, that there have been things that have happened to you and the young woman in you is completely appalled, but the writer part of you thinks this is brilliant material. And that's how you transmute it. That's how you save it. That's how you work through it. That's how you turn it into something. And it seems to me that at the moment, one of the extraordinary things it's happening in Ireland that's been happening from the equal marriage referendum that's been happening through the abortion referendum that's happening now with traveler activists is people women especially telling their stories um you know you look at the essays of Shade Gleason and of Emily Pine and you look at the sort of stories that people are telling and um you look at Emma Dabbery telling her stories um about growing up in Ireland and and racism you look at the stories that are coming out about women and babies in the institutions run by the catholic church and the abuses of power and there seems to be at the moment a great surge in people telling stories and of refusing shame and it makes me think of something that kevin barry says he says that when he's reading work he scans for the sentence or for the moment that feels to him deeply shameful and that's a powerful bit. That's the bit that people are going to connect to. And there's something at the moment in Irish literature that part of this golden age that we're going through, to me, comes from a vast array of people telling stories. The stories might not be huge stories, but they might be stories that haven't seemed to fit in with you know, that, that sepia tone postcard of what an Irish writer is or that idea of what an Irish story is. Is that something that you have felt each of you emboldened by or invigorated by? 
Um, well, I, yeah, it's funny. You know, obviously, I'm living in um, Northumberland at the moment. So as much as I'm very familiar with what you're saying about this feeling in Ireland, and obviously I've heard an awful lot about this Irish golden age, I'm not sure if I completely um, prescribe the idea that it necessarily exists. I think that um, there's absolutely an awful lot of stories being told and um, and I think this idea of, I think you called it refusing shame. I, I love that idea. And I wish that telling a story of one's shame actually exercised it in some way that would be amazing. <laughs> um, and I, th I think it's, I think we're at a stage now where it's a, um, it's a wonderful step, this sense of freedom and the absolute glosh, the pure sheer quantity of writing coming out of Ireland. Um, but I don't know if we've reached a golden age of, of all of these stories being realized into something sort of majestic or transcendent. Um, I think we're all striving towards a golden age, but I don't, I personally don't feel we're quite there. I think there's just a lot rather than some concise, incredible moment happening. It's something that I think when I was putting together my lists of writers for being various, you suddenly realise you you don't quite know just how many writers there are until you start having lists that's page after page of writers working across so many forums. That was when I thought, yeah, this really is this really is something. But it's interesting. Yeah, and how much of an Irish writer do you feel, and how much of a different writer do you feel writing in English? to you write in a sort of uh, Sejuanese dialect and Mandarin. Um, how different do you feel? Um, I think, well, I think now that I'm living in England, so I think when I lived in Dublin, I think we might have talked about it, Lucy, before, um, that whenever, when people, you know, when I lived in Ireland, when I lived in Dublin, I am obvious that I'm like blaringly Chinese. And uh, that's like my main identity. And um, But now, funnily, that I'm living in England um, with my Irish family, I've become excessively Irish and uh, I defend my Irishness because <laughs> I, I just um, graduated, but I was in a writing program. And I think really noticeably, um, I, there was this me and there was this other girl from Limerick and then we were like the two Irish girls in the workshop and we'd like defend Irish phrases or like to explain to other people something like and and I think it's funny in the sense that um I was just listening to a talk before this started um from Frederick Jensen and he was talking about the idea of identity and he he doesn't seem to be quite believing in it he he seems to think it, this is a, an invention and but what he was saying very interestingly is we always we what we really need as individuals is we need to position ourselves in this world and it is the relationship between us and the world around us that identifies us so it's really the positioning so I think in my case it's really the positioning I think when I was in China I was you know doing that and then when I was in Ireland I think I had a more complicated relationship with I struggle so much with the 
traveling weather. This is very funny. It has become a joke. It's like I bumped into a person when I was in Dublin. I just, oh, you're the woman who's really afraid of the wind. I was like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> so, and, and and then now I'm here. And and then I think um, the teachers, like the professors in the writing program, they sometimes would refer me as like, oh, you know, Yen, she, she's like a bit Irish or... And I was told by a few people here, like in England, that I have an Irish accent. I was absolutely shocked. Was like, that's insane. So I think it's about the positioning of yourself. And at the same time, I think it's about to whom you're telling your story. And I do feel like, say, when I, I wrote maybe two stories um, for the Irish Times, and or not four, but like I was... Um, I was very conscious, including the story I wrote um, when you commissioned me. And then when you were doing a story and you you know consciously this is for the readers in Ireland. And I think that seems to be a bit different. Like like now, if I'm just writing in English, like here, sort of a generically, and then you're thinking about English reader. But then are they actually like, they're not just Irish. So, and then I don't know if I would really reduce or enhance my Irishness. I tend to see the Irishness in me is an inevitable element because sometimes I find it funny. It's like, how Irish am I? Like, I'm like not Irish. <laughs> um, but I do think that is in my writing, that is particularly in my English writing, I think uh, there is the element of it because I think that's the characters. And I do think sometimes looking back, like my writing in Chinese, I think there were something um quintessentially connected like the Irishness was there even before I recognized this part of me even before I moved to this part of the world there was something I think that's pretty wild let's put it <laughs> and and that really echoed I think and then it was brought up again when I'm here when I write in this language so but yeah. you wouldn't translate you don't I find it interesting that you don't you work closely with your translators but you've never wanted to translate the work you wrote in Chinese into English. And when your story, The Brief and Well-Documented Life of Alexander Whelan was translated into Chinese, you didn't want to do the Chinese, the Chinese translation. And also an editor who knows your work very well wrote to you and said it didn't sound like you. There's like there's something, some divide that you're comfortable with the language that you initially write it in, but you don't. Yeah, I think. Well, I think the the problem is if I were translating my own work, I still haven't figured out how this could work. Like I, I did an interview um, with Jhumpa Lahiri last week or a while ago, and she managed to translate her own work from Italian to English, which I thought was absolutely a miracle. Like, how did you do it? Because for me, I think if I were translating my own work, I would just rewrite it because so many of the things that does not make sense when you're talking to a different group of audience and you're just like simply just because you're the writer. So you don't have to stick with the original. You're just like, OK, I'll just redo it. So I think for me, there seems to be this barrier in a sense, not in the linguistic sense, but maybe in the more like ideological and cultural sense that is this because you're addressing a different group of people and then you might need to reshape your story. Some jokes might not work. Some, you know, wordplay might not work. And those are the things the translators would spend loads of time. You know, the translators, I think their genius were like tackling, not just that, but like they, they do it very well. They translate the, the untranslatable things. And I think for me, because I'm not a translator, I would just simply redo it. But then, 
<laughs> so yeah, I haven't figured out how to really do it myself, but I'm I I'd like to think I think I'd like to think I am two different writers when I write in Chinese and in um English. I was about to say in Irish. <laughs> she says it's not possible to be another writer, but it is possible to be two writers in yeah 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 that's I think that's precisely true and and I think I am trying to really taking baby steps to to learn how to write in English and I think it's because my English writing persona is so weak is so young compared with my Chinese writing persona like me and I just always wanted to go back and just like you know it's probably happens like 10 times a week when I just complain to my husband to say I'm gonna go back to writing Chinese this is it I will never write in English again <laughs> constantly want to go back and and sometimes you can I can feel that um there were two personas identities fighting each other because yes but I think the struggle itself is really part of its charm because you do want to struggle as a writer I think if you are writing something very you know doable like really easily you can just do this I don't think you want to do it anymore so it really is like the struggle itself is part of the, the luring and you just <laughs> are really attracted to it I think it's interesting Yen you talk about that sense of being split and being neither here nor there and being a Chinese writer transformed into an Irish writer or with an Irish writer subpersonality living in England. And Lucy, I think this is something, this idea of hinterlands, you know, being neither here nor there. I read you gave an interview in which you described your childhood as all these different versions of yourself that didn't align. Mm, yeah. Um, tricky for a person maybe, but maybe really useful for a writer. Yeah, if I if I hadn't had that feeling as a child, you know, again, it's that you wonder would you bother turning to writing if you felt you were a sort of fully formed, unified human. Um, I'm sure loads of people do, but I think for myself, it was um, absolutely a way to make sense of not only the world around me, but of who I was supposed to be in it. Um, I definitely have felt like for as long as I can remember this sense of slightly performing with the people that I found myself with and then feeling a deep sense of inauthenticity because I wasn't sure which of those people I was actually supposed to be. And I guess writing is just a way of making sense of that um, fragmented self, maybe. Mm -hmm. You come from a literary family. Um, your mum, I think, I don't know if this is a first, but your mum, Kathy Sweeney, she published her debut collection with Stinging Fly, um, the same year within a couple of months of you publishing Paris Syndrome, Modern Times. Um, it contains the immortal first line, there once was a woman who loved her husband's cock so much she took it to work in a lunchbox. Um, your writing doesn't exactly shy away from, you know, sexual graphicness or masturbation or all these things that, that are sort of in keeping with that. But I wondered, do you, I think it can be very hard for a family to have one writer in it, let alone two. I quite often feel um, that I imagine, yeah, there must be some, you know, brilliantly worded Chinese curse. It's may your, like, may, may you live in interesting times. You know, that Chinese curse, like, may your family have a writer in it. Sounds like it could <laughs> And I wondered, and yet I know that you come from a literary dynasty as well, and your husband is also a writer. So, Lucy, how does, with your 
mum, does it ever feel there's contested territory telling two narratives? Do, do you talk about writing? Do you read each other's drafts? How does, how does that all work? So I think um, for myself and my mum, writing was a real gift because um, through all the sort of turbulent years that Ireland and then also our family went through, um, like I was 18 when the Celtic Tiger crash happened. Um, and I think it was a great way to continue a conversation with one another that didn't necessarily always touch. It, it was quite theoretical. You know, it was a great way to... Um, to bond without having to maybe go into more painful topics. It's a, it's a one writing as a topic is a wonderful way to talk around um, real or difficult or painful things because you're talking about it as an art form as some, some way to express yourself. Um, in terms of contests, uh, like, you know, writing wanting to write two narratives of the same thing. I think thus far, um, we've both just been able to support each other's writing enormously and um, use it as a way of bonding. Now, I don't know if either of us will ever kind of get to the point where we want to write um, a shared narrative in a certain way. We haven't had to sort of broach that yet, but um, I, do, I don't think it would ever cause friction or anything. Um, my mum has always, like she submitted my first story to The Stinging Fly for me. I didn't think it was worthy. Um, and she has always been sort of my greatest cheerleader. So I think it's been um, thus far a very, very supportive role. Yeah, and you, Yen, with your yeah. your your name, you have a you have a literary literary heritage in your family. <laughs> yeah. So well, um, I think growing up, I was literally a bit fed up with all kinds of literary people and their sort of melodrama. <laughs> and because I think I also talked to Lucy about it and it's um it's because my my mom and my so pretty much I grew up in a family like my whole extended family and they were all most of them were all kinds of literary people like editors poets and like ch Chinese like literature teachers and so yeah and the the great activity for my family when we get together is to recite poems and it's always like a festival like a chinese new year we sit around the big table like christmas and then everybody just my dad like starts reciting this poem from Li Bai, and then my mom joins in to say oh how about that one and then everybody end up crying together like literally which is just a bit a bit too much for a teenager and and but I do appreciate that. I think when I when I'm at where I am now, like I'm taking writing very. I think I'm very lucky to take writing something I deeply love as my profession. Um, and I think I I do appreciate what my parents did for me is to really kind of deeply marinate me into this context of literature. And um, because I think I'm very um attuned to uh, I'm tuned in um. Uh, to language like very sort of a closely and sensitively it's precise especially I mean Chinese language for that and um, because of that because the way I was brought up and and then with my husband it's really funny because there is then this sense of um contesting over uh, materials because then he'd come home to tell me this funny story that happened say in his office I was like, oh that's interesting and he would see just like the look in my eyes and he was like, that's my story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
so we would like have like you know a, a territory marked out to say well, that's quite interesting maybe and she said I, I'm gonna write about that and I would say so there was this thing I really wanted to write about but it was like his story and I was like if you are not writing about it before the end of next year I'm gonna write about it and that was well, it um, so was, yeah a little while ago to Wendy Erskine who um who's a brilliant writer who uh, was my sixth form English teacher. I mean, you can't imagine a better teacher, you know, to marinate you in, in, in literature. And she told me this brilliant story. And as she was telling it, I thought, okay, if if in 10 years time, you haven't used that. <laughs> yeah, if you're listening, the, um, it's a story about the, the, the flaming Bible. I have, usually um, this is, I've put my stamp on it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we, it would be lovely to hear. We haven't heard anything of your work yet, so it would be lovely to hear. Um, Lucy, can you? You're going to read from a story called Montparnasse. Yes, absolutely. Um, let me find my page. So this um, is a story in which Lucy and her friend go to see the graves of Simone de Beauvoir and Jean Paul Sartre, um, and find it uh, disappointing, as along with everything else in this story. So um, here's a little snippet. I glanced over the little notes people had left on the grave, written on used metro tickets, weighed down with pebbles from the gravel pathways. French, English, Japanese, other languages I didn't recognise, all with their own special connections. Some with little happy or sad smiley faces. The man looked too and I decided to sigh deeply, trying to encourage some tiny hint of blocked emotion up from my chest. The sigh moved trapped air around inside me and I had to suppress a burp. Caught inside my mouth, it tasted on my tongue of Pinot Noir and strong white cheese. But I didn't know these people. The notes made me feel sick and silly, the love hearts and the quotes. And I hated the man for being there too, for ruining it and my respectful friend for expecting something of me. I glanced around and she was texting, probably her boyfriend back in London. They'd been together for three weeks, nothing too serious, not yet, although she was delighted by how much he was keeping in touch. He'd asked her to update him on every activity and vice versa, although he was just home as usual, working as an accountant for PwC in the city. Last night, as we were getting ready to go out for dinner, I'd seen her phone light up with a message telling her his gym stats followed by four emojis of smiley faces with their tongues out and three of a muscled arm flexing. Later, when I came back from the bar, she showed me a selfie he'd sent of himself and the guys having after work drinks in Leadenhall Market. He told her they were planning a work-sponsored charity bungee jump for orphaned Syrian children, which seemed to make my friend weak at the knees. Along with the photo, he included the hashtags Hashtag charity, hashtag good cause, hashtag do the right thing, hashtag orphans in Syria, hashtag no more war, hashtag save the children, hashtag peace, hashtag bungee jump, hashtag PWC. In return, she asked me to take a photo of her with every meal because he was such a foodie and this was Paris after all. Lovely, thank you. I love that sense of the, the fabric of how we live you know, the hashtags and the, I have a story in my collection that was meant to be out last May has been delayed until next May. 
um, and it sort of hinges on on WhatsApp. You know, you send a message and the ticks come up and then you can see if it's gone blue, you can see if someone's online, you can see if they're typing or not. And, and I find that fascinating. Yeah, and your story, Alexander Whelan as well, it's all about the, the ways that we live online in such fascinating ways. And so both of those, I would really encourage people to, to seek out. Yeah, you're not going to read from Alex Whelan, you're going to read from a different story though, am I right? Yeah, I thought maybe just do something different every time. <laughs> yeah, so um, I I was um, I actually tried to do some practicing last night. I'm terrible at reading stories, even were written by written by me. So I have to disclaimer: this is going to be painful. This is a story. Um, this is actually um, the first story um, about China. Um, that I wrote in English. So this was the first story in English um, about China. And this um, had to come out with um, the sting and fly in the summertime, and which was a great honor to me. I was like, oh, my dream come true. So um, yeah, it's about a group of Chinese people <laughs> in China. <laughs> um, so it's called The Little House. And I'm just gonna read um, the beginning of it. Um, the little house. Outside the little house, Old Stone was talking about geese. Their intestines, that's the best part, he said. The best goose intestines come from white family town. Do you know why? No idea, I said. The women there have strong and slender fingers, the perfect kind of fingers for plugging into the goose asshole and yanking out the intros while it's still alive. They do it with precision and determination. They do this in a flash to preserve its tenderness. I'm a vegetarian. He shook his head. Why? I thought about how to reply. That's no good, he said. Plus, I don't think I've seen you eating since you came here. I don't feel hungry, I said. He turned around to the table next to us and shouted, Small Bamboo, can you talk some sense into this girl? Small Bamboo had fallen asleep in his chair. It was almost 3 a.m. Anyway, he said, turning back to me, guess which part of the cow the yellow throat comes from? Its throat? Ha! He reached for his beer and took a long pull. I've asked more than a hundred people this question. Nobody's got it right. It comes from the cow's coronary artery, and it has to be the right one, because the right one is thinner than the left one, so it gets cooked very quickly in the hot pot. Do you know how how many seconds it takes to cook the yellow throat? Uh-huh, eight seconds. Lots of people overcook it. That's why you should never throw a piece of yellow throat into the pot. Hold it with chopsticks and dip it into the soup. Count to eight and take it out. Only this way would it be crispy and chewy. I need to go to bed now, I said. Sure you go, he took another mouthful from his beer bottle. Aren't you going to sleep? Ah, no, no, I'm fine. When you're old, you don't need to sleep. I'll just get another beer. He stood up and walked into the little house. The light was still on. Sister Dew was curled up on the booth seat, snoring. I watched through the window as Old Stone went behind the bar, grabbed a tin doll and returned. I asked her to put it on my tab in the morning. He slumped back into his chair. I'm going now, good night. I stood up and walked back into the tent I shared with Vertical. Thank you. Thank you. Lovely to hear. Um, what are each of you working on at the moment? Have you been able to keep 
reading, keep writing over this really strange year? Um, well, for myself, I have had a very sort of uh, serendipitous opportunity this year where I'm writing a weekly column for the Irish Times um, on my favourite classic books. Um, it couldn't have been a better year for it. So I've just drowned myself in all of my favourite sort of writers, classical writers and everything. Um, so all I feel I've done this year is read. Um, in terms of writing, that has been tougher because I feel I personally take an awfully long time to process things. Um, I'm just a very slow thinker. <laughs> so I haven't been able, like some people, you know, Zadie Smith immediately had a sort of collection out uh, reflecting on the lockdown. A lot of people were talking about how it was the prime opportunity to write. Um, I feel like it's only in the last month or two that I'm really getting back into the flow of being able to concentrate every day on writing. There was just too much happening. <laughs> I thought it was incredible, Zadie Smith's essays. I can't wait to see what she writes in a couple of years time because yeah. she's such a great thinker. But having those essays, intimations, having them written so close to the time and making such sense of them and having that first strange lockdown time preserved was, was amazing. There was as well, um, it's just about to be published. A writer called Jonathan Gibbs did a version of Louis McNeese's Autumn Journal um, called Spring Journal. And it started as a joke on Twitter um, at the start of lockdown back in end of March. He tweeted a sort of parody of the opening of Autumn Journal. And then very quickly it became something more. And so he's it's going to be published by CB Editions and it's in 24 cantos, as is the original. And he took he wrote one canto a week or just under a week, maybe four or five days. And what's brilliant is that it's such a precise record of living through. When I think back, that time just blurs for me. Um, but what Spring Journal does is one week it's about, you know, the UK Prime Minister being in intensive care, or it's about the goats of Llandudno. I don't know if you remember this, when suddenly when Llandudno was empty and the goats sort of had the freedom of the town, you know, they were running about everywhere. And, and so it manages to capture all of these things. And, you know, the moment where I say, I remember my husband would go to our local corner shop, you know, maybe once every two or three days, and no one was wearing masks yet, but he would wear like um, thick woolly gloves just to not touch all of those sort of charting the precise ways in which we change throughout that is that's another real book of the year for me and it's been interesting I find that the writers that I know and the friends that I know that have managed to keep writing have been those who've had a very specific framework or template or purpose um, like a, a weekly column or like a weekly canto or my own writing I was writing um, I was researching the Belfast Blitz of April to May 1941. So I had my time scale and every day I would read and the, the parameters were set for me. And I think that that felt like a lifeline actually being able to do that. Mm. But yeah, and you've, you've managed to submit your thesis. <laughs> you, you have been productive. Um, well, I was pretty much a victim of the structure, right? So I have to do it. Yeah, it's the same. I mean, I'm, I really agree with what uh, Lucy Sweeney was saying. I think I I wish I didn't need to write. Um, I thought I feel this was the time to you know to retreat to kind of um to read or to just just take everything in pretty much. I think that takes really a lot of energy just to 
process it. Um, but unfortunately, because I was in the program and I had to, you know, finish it finish it. I just really wanted to sort of um, graduate. <laughs> so yeah, I was doing lots of late night writing, um, especially at the early days of the lockdown. Like my son had gone back to nursery now, um, but he was at home for about four, maybe actually he was at home for six months, actually for half a year he was at home. So at that, for that period of time, I can only write when he go after he goes to bed. And then I, I ended up staying up late, like sometimes towards 4 or 5 a.m. And that, that's like very frequently. And I think that didn't do me well, like, you know, with my health. And it was like very daunting. Um, but I think because of that, some of my writing, uh, which had been at least uh, first drafted during the nighttime, seems to be a maniac, you know, seems to be like, <laughs> it's a bit insane because you're just like, ah. Um, yeah. And, yeah, again, I, I think I agree, although I, I, I was forced to write a lot of things and I was happy that I did it and, you know, I sort of soldiered through, but I, I wish I, 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 I could have just taken a break. But I mean, at the same time, I think I am taking a break. I am like, I'm one of those um, escapists. So I really think that has nothing to do with the pandemic. <laughs> and and, and and I think it's such a treat because um, I think because of this whole thing that is happening, that is, you know, so huge and formidable. Um, so I have to sort of um, carefully select what I want to read just to sort of stay away from it. And in that way, I think I, I, I allowed myself to read a lot of things um, to pretty much go back to the classics that sometimes you were too embarrassed to admit you've never read a certain book and you're like have to like pretend along all the way. <laughs> I really struggled to read and partly it was having my daughter is the same age as your son they were both two then turned three um, which yeah. is a busy age and my son was five turned six during it all and but it wasn't even not having the the quiet or the space in the house to read it was something worse I found that I lacked the emotional capacity to to commit to anything else you know I'd be scrolling Twitter for news of a vaccine or you know <laughs> you know take vitamin D or do this or um, but I found that I just couldn't concentrate but what I could do what I did find myself doing was um I would sit down in the evening with um a cup of tea or a glass of wine on the nights that I allowed myself a glass of wine um mm -hmm. and I would read a short story and I read some of my favorite you know it might be Laurie Moore or Alice Munro or then what I would do is read a story from an anthology from, um, I've got Sinead Gleason. I mean, this is such a brick. It's on the shelf behind me. It's like, it's got like a hundred stories in. Um, and I would read, and Philip Hencher has just edited a brilliant new anthology for Penguin. And I found that one short story a day, it was somehow manageable. Um, and so I wondered, I wanted to finish by asking each of you if there are people in a similar situation who are struggling to read or have the time to read, who want to read something that comes recommended by each of you. Do you have a favorite, um, let's say one classic and one contemporary short story, Irish short story that you would recommend anyone watching? Um, well, I had to give this an awful lot of thought, actually, um, because I don't, and I don't know why, there's no good reason, I don't often read Irish writing probably just because it's where I'm from. So I'm, you know, curious about everywhere else. Um, but one that immediately sprung to mind in terms of a classic would be to read 
well, first of all, the entirety of Maeve Brennan's writing, but um, I love The Long-Winded Lady as a collection, and I really absolutely adore, um, there's a story in there, well, the first one, Broccoli's Fabulous, but A Lost Lady. Um, mm-hmm. There's just such a, she just captures the, the majesty and the tragedy of these tiny, seemingly inconsequential moments, and... Um, I, there's just something absolutely magnetic about her writing. I, I don't know how she does it. I feel like if I could crack how she does it, I would have cracked writing and I could just sit back with a glass of whiskey and never write again. Um, and then in terms of contemporary writing, I am obviously potentially biased, but I don't think that's it. But I would highly recommend Modern Times by Kathy Sweeney. Um, and my favourite story in there is one that just it hits me all the time in that I'm going about my daily life and I get these images of oranges pouring out of the sink or oranges rotting in the bath. So it's the story oranges towards the end of the collection. Um, there's just something so deeply uncomfortable and dissatisfied and it reflects a sort of uh, maybe a, a sort of middle-aged um, melancholy that I think is just, uh, yeah, stunningly captured. So Modern Times by Kathy Sweeney. I love, I just love the relationship with you and your mum. I don't <laughs> know either of you except for your writing. I love that, 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 so it's so precious, I think, to have that generosity, to be able to meet as equals, to have that respect. Um, I think that's lovely. Thank it's you. Been, um, it, it's been, it's been absolutely essential because writing can be brutal, you know, especially getting published and sort of uh, sending what's something so personal out into the world. I think something my mum and I would talk about a lot is this, um, this double requirement of writing to be sort of sensitive and insular and a private person in a lot of ways where you're spending an awful lot of time alone in a room and yet to also have to be very public and thick skinned mm. at the same time. And I, I don't know if I'd have survived even these early stages of it without someone to sort of share those wounds with. Yen, have you started worrying yet what Killian will think when he starts? <laughs> uh, I sometimes it, it does cross my mind to think, oh, what if he yeah, but yeah, I, I don't think I would like to worry about that. Yes. <laughs> it's uh, it's funny, um like Lucy Swinney, this just shows this is one of the reasons I really like Harnett. So uh, modern times um I saw the cover of it um, before it was published because um, did I mention that Irish girl from Limerick who were in the same workshop with me in my program and she did the cover designing and the Irish cover. And, and then so she sent me that uh, image of the cover um, and I was like, what is this gorgeous book? <laughs> and so I think because she did the cover and I, I was following that book. And um, yeah, it was such a beautiful book. And I did like Lucy read the first story. <laughs> And, and just uh, I thought it was incredible. Um, yeah. So if, if I were recommending, I, I don't. I I always feel this question like makes me very nervous because I'm in no position in recommending Irish short stories. Um, but so I this is one of the things that I was too ashamed to admit that I I had never um, read and which I picked up during the pandemic. I was reading <laughs> John McGahar and and so I really loved him and I I thought. It's such a great, like, it's just a very good thing to do during the pandemic. I feel it just really calms me down all the stories. And so, and I was doing, a, I was teaching online Irish um, short fiction course um, to a group of um, actually Chinese students all over the world. And 
so I taught parachutes um, by John McGahran, which I thoroughly enjoyed and I would recommend it. I'm sure everybody has read it in Ireland, but no, do you know, I think that's interesting thing, this idea of books that you should have read. And I think that there are some books that you encounter at the time in your life that they're right for you. The same with writing. We have this pressure to you know emerging writer and to be you can maybe the time for you to start writing is in your 50s in your 60s in your 70s the same with 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 books there's no reason why anyone should <laughs> have read anything by any certain age you know there's no there's no cut off points well thank you for saying that it makes me feel better <laughs> uh, yeah, so the the contemporary one I really like, uh, Nicole Flattery, and I love that short story actually in being various feather or feathers feather I think, um, because it's it's so charmingly grotesque, and I think that's her usual style, and it has this nice sense of um, dystopian. <laughs> and yeah, so so I I think again and like you know within the in the context of the pandemic, I thought it was such a good good story to to be picked up or to reread and and it just brings yeah again it brings me comfort yeah some tips for you there um strong recommendations from everyone for Kathy Sweeney's modern times <laughs> um, Lucy and Yen's books and um, maybe some of these others as well are available for sale in the Dublin Book Festival um, online bookshop. The festival will continue online all of this week with lots of brilliant conversations. So do check out the programme. And thank you for being with us. Thank you for listening to us today. And we do hope to see, come and meet us when we can see you in person and get the book signed and, and that will all be wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Brought to you by Dublin Book Festival. Proudly supported by the Arts Council of Ireland, the Irish Copyright Licensing Agency, Dublin UNESCO City of Literature, Dublin City Council and RTE Supporting the Arts. Thank you.